0: Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of KISS Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please take a moment to subscribe to our newsletter on our homepage at www.kisorganics.com to stay up to date on the latest podcasts, product announcements, and videos. Our guest this week is Anne Bickley. Anne is the co-author of The Hidden Half of Nature, a book she wrote with her husband, David Montgomery, in my last podcast interview. Anne is a biologist, writer, and gardener with wide-ranging interests. She has over two decades of professional experience spanning field biology, watershed restoration, environmental planning and stewardship, and public health. She uses her broad background and endless fascination with the natural world to examine connections between people and their environments. Anne attended the University of California, Santa Cruz, earning bachelor's degrees in biology and natural history. She also holds a master's degree in landscape architecture from the University of California, Berkeley. Well, thanks, Anne. I appreciate you coming on the show today. I'm really excited to get to talk to you today.
1: Yeah, me too, Tad. Thank you.
0: So can we start off giving listeners a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah, sure. So I, i Come from sort of a a, a very broad background, for uh, you know sort of formal education wise, I have uh, degrees in biology and natural history, and a graduate degree in a field that's called environmental planning, which is sort of a sub-discipline of landscape architecture, and. So that's, that's kind of my formal training. And I have to say it's no surprise that I have ended up uh, enamored with the botanical world because of all of those things. Uh, one of my earliest memories as a kid, I grew up in um, sort of the suburbs outside of Denver. And one of my earliest memories was wandering around in our yard because you did that uh, when I was a kid, (laughs) there were no screens or anything like that. So what you did was you went outside and you explored the world. And to me as a little kid, the yard was, you know, plenty big, uh, as a, as a four or five year old. So there it was, uh, early June, you know, memories of cold and snow are dim in my mind, but the garden, The garden hadn't really quite woken up, and I have to say this. My parents were not, like, green-thumb kind of people. There was no big gardening history or anything like that in my family. But they had put plants in, and they had established a couple of small rock gardens within the larger yard. And I remember walking around to the the back of the yard one day, and I was looking down at these iris rhizomes. And you know how ugly those things look? They look like a piece of ginger. And then I followed the stock up, and there was this flower that I just could not believe that it had come out of that gnarly, you know, dead-looking rhizome thing. And so that's what I credit with sort of the beginning the beginning of what I now call a pretty bad case of plant lust on my part. <laughs> Uh, I I've always I've just always enjoyed being around plants and growing plants and and again in Colorado you can't you know now I live in Seattle so we've got you know pretty you know year-round growing season for many things here Colorado that was not the case so what I did was I commandeered this very large table in our living room and I started filling it up with plants, all different kinds of house plants. And that was, that was how I sort of satisfied my, my green thumb and my plant lust as I got to be older and figured out, uh, you know, how to plant a plant, how to watch it grow and and, and how to take care of it and so on. Uh, one of the the things that i have always done though it, you know whenever you know once i once i moved out of home and and went to college and stuff like that right you start renting places and what are the yards in most of these places that uh, anybody rents sort of look you know they're kind of cruddy they're just there's not much there most of the time and it's about the last thing that a landlord really wants to take care of so i started to cut my teeth on gardening at a lot of different rental places over the years. And what was good about that is I think growing plants is uh, uh, it's definitely one of those trial and error kind of experiences. Some things work out and some things don't. And a plant will let you know, you know, pretty much right away uh, if it's, if you're doing the right things and if you're doing the wrong things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. And so then you moved out to Seattle and established your own garden. I know you talk about it in the beginning of The Hidden Half of Nature, which you wrote with, with David. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience? With I know you focused there on mulching, and, and he had some unique perspectives from a, a geological perspective on how quickly you were able to build the soil in your yard.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. It's funny because it was about this time uh, some years ago that we really, that we got going. So we have bought a house in Seattle years ago, and part of what drew us to, the, and this is in the middle of the city, Ted, you know, this is not like some extra large lot or something like that. So we're in the middle of Seattle, and what originally drew us to the house, remember we looked at the house in February, and so at that time of year, there's there's early February there's not much going on, but you know I could see that there were a couple of trees. You know, obviously at that time of year, the, all lawns in Seattle are, you know, the, that emerald green color. And 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 what really attracted me was that the house is built on one. It's, it's 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 was built on one side of the lot, and so that left the other side of the lot really largely uh, a blank slate. And I saw that and, you know, I just had, I had plants, plants uh, adorning my eyeballs. That was like all I saw was, oh man, the garden potential here. I've never seen anything, anything like this. So uh, we didn't get, get going on the garden quite as soon as, as we wanted. We sort of had some fixer upper stuff to do inside of the house and what's, what's, What's kind of humorous at this point, it was definitely not funny at the time, is that once we did break ground to to do the garden, we began with sort of very unlike today where people are demolishing houses left and right around here. We didn't demolish the house. We sort of demolished everything that was out in the yard. And by that I mean, um, as it turned out, uh, the The trees that had looked alive, at least a couple of them, were actually dead uh and so so, the first order of business was to remove these couple of dead trees. There was uh a tree that's called a horse chestnut um that was engulfing one side of the house, and so we removed that. Oh God, and then there was a mulberry tree that actually had wonderful mulberries in the summer, but in the winter time. It looked horrible, somebody had previously topped that tree like about you know no less than ninety nine times. It looked like this medusa head, and so anyway we got we 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 got the stuff out of there that and it was nearly everything because there was really never to my eye anyway anyone who had seriously gardened here at all. It was when we looked into the history of the house, it was norwegians, the osterbergs who had. Uh, bought this lot and built the house, and I think, like a lot of people in this region, they, at least at that time, anyway, whatever blew in on the rain and the wind, that's what your yard was made of. So, so the long and the short of it is, we got everything cleared, and we were doing this, you know, as as that summer progressed, as we were putting the garden in, you know, we started, like I said, it was around. Well, actually, it was Memorial Day weekend, that's right, because the guy was supposed to show up the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, and it had been put off numerous times that this guy was going to start, and I remember just laughing, and Dave and I saying, oh, right, somebody's going to show up the Friday before Memorial Day weekend to start on on a large job, so we didn't the guy cancelled so many times we we were so surprised then when somebody his name was Jim, and he walked up the driveway with a chainsaw and that's all he had and he all he said was, "Name's Jim, I'm here to start the job Oh <laughs> that day, Jim let loose he was a uh he had been a logger previously, so he you know he knew how to handle a chainsaw he knew how to take all the stuff out and within about uh three or four hours our place looked like a moonscape and i completely freaked out and i thought oh my god is this really what we want this place looks horrible there's not a stitch of green left uh and some bare spots of soil were starting to emerge and it only got worse from there tad because we took the Like, this is about a month later or so, you know, there was like a small bulldozer thing driving around on the lot, doing leveling and this and that. And by that time of year, the lot, our soil just, I realized, Dave wasn't, he wasn't, you know, he doesn't even have a green thumb. To him, it was like dirt is dirt is dirt. To me, though, I thought, oh, man, this is looking worse and worse. The soil's getting, like, lighter colored by the day. The rocks seem to be breeding and how is this ever going to grow anything? And worst of all, we got, we ended up planting, you know, many of the plants that I that I had, because I'd been sort of stockpiling them for the last couple of years, and they really wanted to get out of their pots. So we start planting them, and then we run into the dreaded glacial till, which is all over Seattle. And the glacial till is this hard pan layer. It's almost as though... Somebody snuck in <laughs> back in time, poured concrete all over the place, about eight, ten, twelve inches down, and then they put the soil back on top. And so we'd hit this hard pan with a shovel, and it was just like I broke my elbow, broke my wrist on that stuff. And what this? So we had that was one problem, and with just what had happened on the lot over the years, there was never, there was not. Any really organic matter buildup because there were really not many sources of organic matter um, at all, and so I so I'm sort of this guy bringing on PTSD or something. <laughs> so I remember. Also, the other big problem at that time of year is like water. I'm like, God, we are, you know, I was cursing the landscape architect. I'm like, God, I can't believe we're out here, middle of August. You know, there's a water shortage on the Cedar River, and at the time I worked in the water and salmon field, and I'm like, I'm just killing salmon trying to, you know, keep these plants alive. And what what I knew from, you know, previous short, short-term short gardening things that I had done, you know, at these various places that we had rented, I'm like, i got to get some organic matter. And I just get organic matter and bring it and just layer it on top of the soil because that is going to cut down on the watering first of all. So I scrambled around for much of that August and into the months of, you know, September through December in the early the next winter, uh, getting any kind of free and cheap organic matter that I could and bringing it home and layering it on top of the beds. And it felt... um, there's just something really satisfying to me when, especially after g- having going, gone through that sort of you know somewhat traumatic experience, to mixing up just a really nice mulch that has like, you know, at least two, maybe three or four different kinds of organic matter. And it's a nice texture and there's a nice moisture level to it. And just laying it out on the beds. And I sort of feel like it's... Um, everything's just taken care of and i can walk away and i can let the green bodies of all the plants in the garden uh just do what they know how to do because there's there's definitely one thing i've learned in putting this garden in and taking care of it over the years is all of us gardeners and i don't care if you're growing cannabis or other things although I I I definitely understand the tendency with cannabis is intervention intervention we gotta you know we're trying to grow this stuff it's a cash crop and so on and so forth but I really have come to see over the years that uh, if you just give plants what they need their their bodies really know uh, how to how to take care of themselves and it's when we get in and start mucking things up uh, that it starts mucking up the way that a plant's green body works and then we run into, you know, pest problems or we run into um various other things and then that turns into sort of a feedback loop where then we have to jump in with some other intervention to take care of the first intervention that we caused. So that's definitely um something i've seen in my own garden especially as plants mature and the trees in particular. Uh, a, a tree is just a really amazing thing because the, the larger it grows and as it begins to mature, it becomes, in, in sort of normal situations, it becomes better and better equipped to take care of itself because it's dropping these loads of organic matter in the form of leaves uh, on, on top of the ground, and it's the perfect kind of plant food um, for the tree itself so you know I'm still so that that's sort of the story of of the garden and how um it was really by returning organic matter to the soil that that I feel like it got it got our garden off to a good start and it really saved um it really saved our butts that first those that first couple of summers when we were watering uh and it's only continued to, I think, build the health of the soil. You know, because some people will come over and they're like, "Really, you don't use any fertilizers or anything like that?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not. I, I, I don't. First of all, I'm not going to buy that stuff. Second of all, in a in the kind of garden that we have, I'm not looking, um, but the exception of the vegetable beds." I'm not looking for rapid I'm not looking for these plants to put on a lot of biomass and rapid growth because these are all for the most part right trees are perennials and these shrubs are perennials and I want them to have a nice steady rate of growth because any any biomass that a plant puts out in really sort of rapid short order that's beyond what its body would do normally that's just like putting out Uh, pest food and pathogen food Uh, and that is something you know no gardener no gardener wants and so it's I I like to see an uh, I like to see a plant that has um, a nice rate of growth say you know in the spring and then it slows down in the summer and then that that's kind of that Uh, it just you don't get gangly looking plants you get robust and full looking plants and like i said um there's I, I don't think a plant has the ability when it is putting out a ton of growth uh i don't think a plant always has the ability to to stock all of its defensive chemicals throughout all of the new new growth if if you're you know, heavily fertilizing something. I mean, you ask anybody, you know, oh, well, when did the aphids come on or when did this thing come on? It's like, you know, most of those problems happen um, during, not always, but often during, you know, growth spurts of, of plants because the pests know, ah, there's that nice, young, fresh tissue. There's where I'm going to go, you know, insert my my pincher thing or my sucker thing and start eating up this plant. So I I... I really like to think about, what I like to do is is try to match a plant both to my goals as a gardener and to what the capability of the soil is. And I feel like a well-grown plant is reflecting um, the quality of the soil and the quality of the environment in which it lives.
0: So I wanted to touch on this idea of organic matter a little bit. A little bit more thoroughly in the sense that i know that not all organic matter is created equal i mean putting out chicken manure, manure is very different than putting out mm. arborist chips just based mm. on the carbon to nitrogen ratio uh can you touch on your experiences with that and what you were using as sources for uh, orga- uh mulching in your garden
1: yeah 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 you bring up a really good point because i i i had a beautiful tree it's since died and i and I blame myself partly for that. It was this it was this tree called it's a red bud. So this is a, a or Circus Occidentalis is sort of the native one. What this tree is, it's got these gorgeous heart shaped leaves and I had a cultivar of it that had this great name that I love, Forest Pansy. I mean, who came up with that? <laughs> anyway, this tree this tree was, was gorgeous. The the leaf color was Knocked my socks off! It's actually the fall color on this tree. And when I planted that tree, it was a bare root tree. It was like maybe the diameter of uh, my my thumb and my index finger together, so pretty small tree. And I was fortunate enough to win the zoodoo lottery. And the zoodoo, for those listeners who don't know, this is composted manure of the herbivores at Seattle Zoo. So. The zoo has a program where they handle all of the composting of that manure, and then every spring and fall you send a postcard in, and you can get zoo do, And it is an animal manure, and it is animal manures are high in nitrogen. And we know that nitrogen is what fuels mostly the green growth uh, of plants. And so I thought, oh, this tree needs zoo do. So that's what I did. I, I put a lot of Zoodoo on that tree, probably two or three seasons in a row. And, boy, let me tell you, that tree grew. <laughs> it really grew. But that tree also has a problem. It's got really lousy branching structure, which is to say that uh, that tree really wants to be a shrub it has no central dominant leader that, you know, shoots up and that has, you know, well-behaved and well-structured lateral branches coming off of that central leader. So I, what this tree had was maybe four or five dominant leader stems shooting up to the sky. And um, the problem with that after about its 10th year was that those branches, those little stems became bigger and bigger and bigger branches, heavier and heavier. And it began to split right where those, those branches joined the main trunk of the tree. And I thought back to what was going on. and, And part of it was, like I said, it's just the natural structure of that tree. But also I had boosted the growth like crazy of that tree in the early years with all of that zudu. You know, I knocked that off after like several years because I was sort of standing back going, wow, this tree's growing bigger, faster than I ever thought it could. And at that point, I just started doing straight wood chip mulches. And a straight wood chip mulch for me, I really like because it's really, really good at doing two things. It suppresses weeds and it does not give a seed a weed seed a place to germinate and because wood chips are almost well they're, they're from a composting standpoint they're considered you know uh purely you know all carbon very not they're not really they're not a nitrogen source at all so I like that because it's a very slow feed slow decomposition process as as the wood chips come in contact, of course, with microbial life in soil and other and, and sources of nitrogen in the soil, it, they will decompose. But it's, but it's a slow process. So that was my hard lesson in learning the difference between carbon sources of organic matter and nitrogen sources of organic matter. And now around my trees, because they're all, they're healthy, they're they're doing their thing of putting on a normal amount of growth for whatever species they are. I, don't, I do straight wood chip mulch on my trees. And what I save my nitrogen-rich sources of organic matter for, which these days my primo source of, of nitrogen-rich organic matter, my prized source, which I always wish I could have more of, is the worm compost that I get out of my worm bins. And that is solely dedicated to my vegetables, my vegetable beds, because, you know, vegetables, I guess they'd be, you know, the closest thing to to uh, cannabis, right? These are annual crops. And what you're looking for is lots of biomass, rapid growth. And uh, with my vegetables, you know, I want to get them to whatever their harvestable state is, whether that's a fruit like a tomato or a floppy, a floppy green leaf or or whatever, so that's where I dedicate my nitrogen sources of organic matter is in the vegetable bed and other places. I do, I'll do spot, uh, I'll do, I'll do spot composting. Say, or not composting, but I'll, I'll put out my zudu uh, as perennials are coming up. If I see that one is sort of poking along, I'll go and I'll. I'll, I'll top dress with compost. I, ne- I, Tad, I never, I rarely, rarely. Well, I actually never. I, I never dig organic matter into my existing soil. And in part, that's because I've got an existing plant there, and so I don't want to be messing around with its roots and be trying to get organic matter down, you know, in, you know, several inches down below the soil. What we're really blessed with in Seattle here is with all this rain you know I can put compost around the crown of a perennial I might throw a few wood chips on top of that compost and then I let I let you know the rain and the heat and microbial action decompose that and and pull those nutrients down into the soil which then brings them in contact with the roots and the plant can take up what it needs and wants in that way so that's that's uh, that's sort of how I think about organic matter. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm somewhat. Um, I, I think there's something instinctual in human beings, both um, both about hoarding <laughs> things. I have a friend who says, "Yeah, that's the whole problem with agriculture. It turned us all into a bunch of hoarders. We're hoarding grains. We're hoarding plants." Well, in my case, I'm kind of an organic matter hoarder. And, and that is to say that mostly what I, I hoard, and I, this has to do with the quantities in which it comes, and that is wood chips. If I get, you know, three or four or five yards of wood chips, I, I don't, the soil can't take, I, you know, all of those wood chips at one time. So I store, I store wood chips, and I will pull them out at different times of the year uh, you know, typically fall and spring is when I like to spread wood chips. But if I'm doing something in the summer uh, and I know, oh, yeah, I've got my stash of wood chips, I can just go quickly, you know, get a wheelbarrow full and do some spot mulching where, say, uh, you know, I'm finding it thin in one area. Because it's it, it's very, you know, organic matter is, and the way that it breaks down and and becomes incorporated into the soil it's very elusive because you'll think you've put an adequate amount out there and you know by that I mean you know three four five inches let's say and then I go out in mid mid to late summer and I'm like where would all that stuff go I'm like scratching around and you know I have like a half an inch or an inch left so Sometimes, depending on the plant and the situation and exposure and aspect you know i might I might sort of touch up mulch uh, in the summertime but uh, i I generally i guess the upshot on all of that is nitrogen, where I want um, lots of biomass and especially leafy growth i'll i 'll put that out um, The other thing I pay attention to with vegetables is uh so that you know the n so, so the bag of fertilizer and the whole npk thing so fruits in order for you fruiting vegetables you know tomato or cucumber or something like that i put always a little bit of phosphorus out um later a little bit later in the summer to get to make sure that the plant has enough phosphorus to get it going in its fruiting stage and of course what comes before fruit is the flower so um i i like to pay attention to that for when i'm growing you know fruiting vegetables uh, something something else oh yes um basil i love to grow basil just cuz there's just nothing that beats fresh pesto and that's certainly a nitrogen a nitrogen hog um of a plant and, and you'll get some pretty fantastic results. I remember one garden I had before I knew a whole lot. I was <laughs> I was putting barely composted chicken manure out uh, around some basil. It didn't burn it, but oh my God, I got like just incredible uh, incredible leaves of basil that year. Some were almost as big as the palm of my hand. So, you know, that, that's what nitrogen and nitrogen-rich uh, sources of compost and organic matter can do for you.
0: So just real quick, I just want to let listeners know that when you're talking about uh, wood chips, you're talking about arborist chips. And uh, I know for us, with our, with our farm, we have a relationship with a local arborist. He's a good friend of ours. And so whenever he gets a load of deciduous chips... We always request those in because they break down faster and then we'll use the evergreen chips or things like that from uh, those trees as our um, pathways because they they take a little longer to break down right Um, so we use wood chips a little differently they're great in our in our chicken yard because the high carbon is balanced with the uh, nitrogen from the chicken manure so they uh, they break down quite quite nicely and give us a nice layer of uh, of, uh, compost underneath. Yeah. So it works really well. Yeah. But I wanted to go ahead and transition into talking about sort of your area of expertise in terms of the biological aspects and the role that they, the microbes play in, in breaking down this organic matter and in, um, sort of making these, these nutrients available to the plant.
1: Yeah. Um, we just posted on, on twitter the other day this really um, uh, interesting paper that that came out that i knew this before but i always like to be reminded of it and it and it's this we think we think about organic matter as being plant derived in a garden it, it, And i'm thinking of my garden specifically you know i'll see leaves in the fall and they've come off the trees and they're right where i want them I think about that organic matter, you know, being a part of the nutrient cycle that is feeding the tree. What this paper showed is that most of the organic matter, or I don't know about mo- much of the organic matter in, <clears throat> in soil, it's true that it starts with plants, but all of that organic matter becomes incorporated into the bodies of trillions and trillions Of microorganisms so that's bacteria that's fungi that's uh, protists that's all kinds of things and not just the microorganisms but becomes incorporated into the bodies of the things that eat the microorganisms so you step it up to you know slightly larger forms of life you know worms and nematodes and and so on so that most of the organic matter that ends up in soil it's getting there, not because it's dead plant matter, but because it's dead microbial matter. And this is a really interesting way to think about uh, organic matter and organic matter cycling, because how do we get um, a lot of microorganisms, uh, you know, flourishing and thriving in the soil? And by this, I mean the beneficial ones. We, of course, are not talking you don't want a bunch of pathogens in the soil. We want we always want our beneficial microorganisms and other life forms to be in larger numbers, bigger populations and so on than the the pathogens and pests. And so when you have all of these life forms in the soil, they're just like us at our dinner table and they need to eat. And so this is what the plants are doing. This is what all this dead plant matter is doing whether it's wood chip or a fresh green leaf that is food for all of the microorganisms which become the organic matter that is what ends up in the soil and it it even goes beyond that because we know now that there's a uh, one of the most life dense zones on the entire planet is around the root system of a plant and that area is called the rhizosphere, R-H-I-Z-O, and then sphere. So sphere is, you know, just area around. And rhizo is, I can't remember if it's Greek or Latin for root, but I think about it as the house of the root, the area of the root. And that's where bacteria and fungi in particular are running to the root system of a healthy plant in a healthy soil as though that is... Um, you know, their dinner, and there's a a very good reason for that. This area called the rhizosphere is where a plant will take up to uh, like 40% of all of these compounds that it has made through photosynthesis, and these compounds are things like carbohydrates and fats and proteins, and it turns these compounds, uh, well, a microorganism considers all of that stuff food and so a plant is exuding these compounds out of its roots, the, the, the name for that is exudates and you just think outward flowing food from the root system Microrgani- microorganisms uh, lap that stuff up and then in return they're making metabolites out of this out of these um, compounds that they've received from the plants and like any organism, they excrete things out of their bodies. And some of the microbial metabolites that have been discovered um, in the soil include things like plant growth promoting hormones. And so this is pre- This is really interesting. You know, you've got one part of uh, the world of life, the microorganisms, making things that help another completely area of life, the botanical world. So... These are some of the things that happen in the rhizosphere um, and it it tells us that this is also one of the we often think about coevolution uh as as being an occurring in the above ground realm of a plant's green body you know the 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 birds and the bees and the flowers and the intricate intricate way in which that all works. But the symbiotic relationships below ground are just every bit as sophisticated and longstanding as what is going. Well, they actually go back even further because they predate flowering plants. So this is this is really um, this is really fundamental, and it's really important that we have some of the grandest symbiotic relationships on this planet occurring right beneath our feet and in a place that we still don't understand that well and we don't we 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 may never know how everything works and what what that tells me is uh is a couple things because this is what's going on in the soil around the roots of a plant is so fundamental to a plant's health and well-being that really what we ought to be doing with whatever kind of plant we're growing is seeking ways to support those symbioses. Because long before we had agrochemical companies, long before we had bags of fertilizer and and all of these other various things in the agricultural and horticultural world, all a plant ever had was the symbiotic relationship where it's feeding the microbes, the microbes are making metabolites and the plant is pulling in those metabolites. And it's not only just metabolites, but fungi in particular will, they, they they can greatly extend the, well, functionally anyway, the reach of a plant's roots. And so they'll be out far away from a plant pulling things like phosphorus, that's the P of the NPK, out of the soil, and they transport it back to the plant and give it to the plant. And... So these are the sorts of natural processes that we don't need to pay for them. <laughs> I'd rather have I'd rather have fungi doing my work for me than you know running out and buying um, synthetic fertilizers. And it we we also know that you know plants and the microbial the soil microbiome. Um, they've worked out their relationships with their their trades in the rhizosphere in ways that keeps both you know the rate and growth of the plant sort of in balance with the soil so that you're not getting excess growth that becomes you know food for food for some pest or pathogen So uh, I really think of the microbial world, the soil microbiome, which you know, and the root microbiome as um, it's sort of like the plant arsenal combined with the plant pharmacy combined with the plant's uh, say cellular communication device. Because there's a ton of signaling that goes on between the microbes around the roots and um, and the plant itself that that are related to how uh, plants defend themselves against above-ground and below-ground pests and how um, plants are communicating with one another. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really fascinating um, world. And I, I would love it if um, I know a lot of cannabis growers, for legitimate and historic reasons, they're growing they're growing these plants inside, and I think that that is um, that's just the way it is, and I get that but there is it i think that's hard on a plant's body to be um, to be sort of taken out of out of where a plant would normally grow, which is in the soil outside in sunlight, exposed to you know all kinds of Biological and non-biological factors that give the plant its um, uh, its hardiness. In the case of food plants, taste and flavor. In the case of cannabis, you know all of these phytochemicals that translate into flavors and smells. And whether one's using cannabis medicinally or psycho or for recreational reasons, everything that it that everything that went into the, that plant's growth is manifest in in some ways um, by the growing environment that it came out of. So I, I would love to see more cannabis grown outside and in the sun, although I completely understand why it's not and why in such cases, you know, you just need more interventions. You need more, more assist um, of plants if they're grown indoors. But it's, I don't know how that's going to ever turn, you know, whether it's, yeah, I I think that's a, that's a difficult thing because it's just not, it's just not sustainable either. So um, anyway, I hope that, I hope that uh, things can turn around on that front with cannabis cultivation.
0: Well, I think there's some issues around uh, temperature. In, in terms of in some areas like here in, in Washington. Oh sure, yeah. It's just it's too cold to grow it outdoors uh, for large portions of the year. But right. um, one of the things that we work with growers on is trying to incorporate what a lot of people are calling living soils uh, with the idea being that we're cultivating these microbial interactions and uh, reusing the soil to create this ecosystem similar to we would have outdoors because like you mentioned, these phytochemical reactions that are going on or interactions um, really do have a large influence on the odor and the flavor of whatever crop you're growing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and, and there are some nutrients that are tied to to terpene expression, like sulfur, but a lot of it is the microbial community. and one of the one of the interesting statistics that I think really shows how important that is to the plant is, um, it's it's been established that something like thirty percent of the uh, of the energy that the plant takes in through photosynthesis is putting back out through the roots as a way of fostering that microbial relationship um, in the form of the exudates, which you described. I just think that's that's amazing that they would give up that much of the um, sort of nutrients that they're taking in just to you know promote this symbiotic relationship.
1: Yeah and it, it, you know it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense biologically because plants have this thing that no other no other life form has and that is the ability to capture sunlight combine it with water oxygen and through photosynthesis make food you're some soil organism living in the dark subterranean and and you're on the roots of this thing that is basically a food factory, and and at the same time you're able as a microorganism to uh, do equally impressive chemistry with uh, you know the things that are available to a microbe in the soil, and then hand that over to a plant. I mean, it it's what it really does is it it takes sort of the genomic potential of a plant and all of its photosynthetic capability, and it takes the genomic potential of, say, a bacterium, and it makes this new organism that is uh, sort of fully, fully capable of using everything that's in the above-ground environment and the below-ground environment and bring it together into this... Um, I don't want to go so far as to say a new life form but with a lot of the microbiome research that's that conceptually at least is how people think about not just plants but also people and you know all kinds of things from the goldfish to the to the polar bear there's what we see and what we think is the life form but then there's what we can't see the invisible that tells us that we're all sort of in amalgamation of a number of different life forms, and that that is a really different way to think about a plant, um, a person, uh, anything like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Isn't there something about how the uh, the majority of what uh, the number of cells on the human body, the majority of them are actually not human cells, but uh, microorganisms or other uh, other. Yeah living form yeah. i think you know that yeah than you.
1: <laughs> yeah that's right the, at one early se, several years ago there was sort of an estimate that got out there that was inaccurate that there was 10 times as many microbial cells as human cells in the human body and it's it's since been adjusted and to, it's around at least at least equal numbers if not slightly more microbial cells but however you look at that if if you look at a person and you think okay that person's half person and half microbe it you know it it puts a whole new light on things like what are those microbes doing? Uh, maybe people should take care of their microbes since they 're a part of their body, and since they do things like you know they help us digest our food, um, really interesting work is being done around um, sort of brain health and the gut microbiome because for example serotonin is a neurotransmitter, and it it helps our brain work, and it it affects whether we're feeling happy or sad, and so people had assumed for a long time, oh, that serotonin, that must be made up in the brain, because that's where most of it's used. No, in fact, most of the serotonin is made um, in the lower reaches of our gut by our members of our um, microbiome. So, that tells us that you know there's some pretty fundamental connections between um, the health of our bodies, the health of our minds, and what our gut microbiota are doing and This is where, <clears throat> much like um the diet of the soil, you know we talked about different forms of organic matter and what the responses of a plant are to the different forms of organic matter and really our our gut is is very much analogous to the root system of a plant because we've got all these microbes living living in our digestive tract, especially the lower reaches, and they need to eat. And as it turns out, all you know, for years and years we've all heard, oh, you should eat your fruits and vegetables. They're good for you. They're good for you. No, they're not so much as good for you as they are the fodder that it appears feeds the, Um, microbial strains and species and communities that are the ones that churn out a huge number of compounds and molecules that have medicinal effects in our body. So, you know, I mentioned serotonin is one such metabolite. There's um, another compound called butyrate that is really important for um, colon health and also important in sort of modulating and regulating the way our immune system works. So just like the root the, the root microbiome is making things like, you know, i mentioned the plant growth-promoting hormone, which is a good thing for the plant. Our microbiome is making all kinds of compounds and molecules that have... Um, it's not just... There's many beneficial effects, but you get... Um, just like in the soil, you get something funky going on, and then you can have your microbiome maybe making compounds and molecules that aren't so good for us. But we do know that across the board, it seems that you know a high fiber diet, which is to say one that is an abundance—not exclusively, but certainly an abundance of unprocessed plant foods—is is something that our microbiome really um, really thrives on yeah it's very it, it it's very interesting
0: yeah i I recently heard a podcast by Paul Stamitz uh, oh that was just it was, it was great. It was on the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, I can send you a link to it if you haven't heard it, but he talks about the role of a fungi and how it its, its impacts on human health. Um, certain things like Lion's Mane, for example, he said there's found that it can actually form new neurological connections in your brain. So I've started taking uh, some of his musho- mushroom supplements, uh, my mm. fiance and I, and we we feel like they're making a difference um, in terms of how we feel. And yeah. uh, there is some research to support this. It's, it's pretty interesting. And I'm not talking about uh, psychoactive mushrooms, though that is something he discusses as well in the podcast which is really interesting but just the um, normal mushrooms that you could find in the grocery store
1: right right yeah there are there are um, it's it's uh, the whole mushroom world is i think greatly under researched Uh, you know we know we know a bit about you know phytochemicals say for example in cannabis you know we know about phytochemicals in tomatoes or carrots and some of these things but Thinking about the phytochemicals, say from fungi, because what happens in our gut with with these phytochemicals that are that are bound up um, when we're eating whole plants or whole whole mushrooms or mushroom extracts, I would also expect to some degree is that our gut microbiota get a hold of these phytochemicals and they they basically they're fermenting them, and when they ferment them, it turns it into other bioactive compounds and products that our body knows what to do with those things. So that's where mushrooms, whole plant foods, I don't want to call them drugs, but they can have drug-like effects in us. And I think part of that probably goes way, way back in human evolution where when we were hunter-gatherers, right, all we were doing was eating wild plants and sometimes you know maybe you ate the wrong thing and you were done with but knowledge and tradition was passed down from generation to generation and that's where of course all the traditions of herbal healing come in and so these plants were um you know i think in some ways became a part of our bodies because people knew in those times okay this plant for this ailment, this plant for this malady. We know this plant comes up in the spring, and we know this malady often comes up in the spring. And so, let's put those two things together. I don't know. May- maybe this is the deep roots of my plant lust. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I, I I think I think anybody who ventures into growing a plant uh, of some sort, it gets you in touch with. Um, our relationship to the botanical world and really how ancient how ancient it is, and how much we need to have plants in our lives for all kinds of reasons you know from aesthetic to medicinal to recreational to um, you know just the amount of carbon um, cycling that plants are involved with on this planet um, we we all i think tad would would, um, do better if we got in touch with our, the roots of plant lust. I'll leave it at that.
0: So beyond mulching, how else can we foster the, this microbial relationship that the plant has with, um, its microbiome?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as much as we love our plants, and I certainly get it, especially somebody in, a, in an agricultural or cannabis growing environment, right? Our, our, our hands and our minds in one way or another are all over that plant. We want that plant to grow and we will do anything um, just about to get that, to allow that to happen. And I think I think our penchant for sort of interfering with the interference isn't the right word. Our penchant for sort of manipulating and managing things, I think we need to um, maybe check that at the door more than more than we do, because the more we sort of think we're going to one up Mother Nature or we're going to one up, you know, how this plant is growing, invariably, you're. Altering, you're altering something about about the trajectory of that plant's life and that and the way that that plant is growing. And I think stepping back and going, okay, on the whole, uh, you know, what are the consequences of me doing this? Is it going to get? Is it going to net me really what I want, or is it, or might it possibly have this downside? Um, As I think. I really think growing plants is figuring figuring out okay what does this plant want to do what is its body primed to do and what can I do as the grower to give it everything it needs to let you know to let that growth occur. So I I, I like thinking about um, sort of getting out of the way of natural processes, but not to the point of uh, just walking away from something, but being mindful about okay, how are my practices how are my practices really gonna um help things along and so for example um I realize that for some situations and cannabis is certainly one of them you know actually i would i would I would almost consider cannabis to be in the same world as bonsai but you know they're in different places on that continuum these are both highly manipulated kinds of plants and growing environments and you can get beautiful results in both cases but to just be aware that we are in the end you know working with the botanical world as opposed to um, you know, trying to get the botanical world to do things that it just really, you know, isn't, isn't going to be good at doing. So, you know, and in fact, I've done my own share of, you know, manipulating and managing plants in my garden from the way that I prune things, from the way that, you know, I'll take a look at a plant, and if it's, if it's, if it's been sickly for too long, and I don't have many plants like this, but I've been known to, to pull a plant up and say, okay, I'm done with you. I don't know, I don't know what is ailing you, you know, I've tried this and this and this, but you're out of the garden and this just was not a good place for you. So there's also, there's also that space of, of, of knowing that, you know, the chemistry and, and I don't mean that in the, you know, synthetic chemistry, the metaphorical, I mean this in the metaphorical chemistry sense, you know, the chemistry is just not right between you and the soil, between me and you, between the place that I have for you. And so we're, you know going to put everybody out of their misery right now and i'll i will i'll pull up a plant and and that um that oh gosh that's really hard to do though tad because for a person with plant lust right you're like oh no what am i doing here then in the end you know most of the time it actually works out okay because i gained some new real estate to put something else in that spot that i think i've made a better selection about how it's going to respond to you know that particular setting in the garden
0: Yeah, so just to keep things moving along for the listeners, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, your upcoming work. I know you and your husband, David, are working on another book. I was curious what role uh, cannabis might play in that.
1: Yeah, we think, so, you know, not surprisingly, after writing The Hidden Half of Nature and well, actually, call it—you know—there's there, the Dirt trilogy. Hidden Half of Nature is the middle book, and Dirt's the first one, and then Growing a Revolution's the third one. It's odd, Tad, that despite these three books, we have not really—we've touched on, but we have not really taken a deep dive into exploring the question of does does soil health affect and influence human health, and if so, how? What are some of those connections and relationships? Anyone listening to this podcast, anyone who talks to me will know that, yes, Anne and and Dave, for that matter, think that there definitely are some connections. But what we want to do is dig deep into the science and um, bring the story to readers in ways that are, you know, entertaining and informative. And there's two crops, as I'll call them crops, that we think um, it's – Every bit is legitimate to talk about um, cannabis and wine grapes in the same breath as we talk about our food crops and the connections between soil health and human health because um, wine grapes and cannabis are part of the botanical world. In one way or another, we bring the tissues um, and products that we make from those plants into our bodies and we know they're doing things inside of our bodies and so it stands to reason then that what is how we cultivate cannabis specifically what does that have to do with the quality of um, the products that we're using whether it's medicinal or recreational or what, what have you so that So we we want to take a a look at that, um, because I think with cannabis, uh, you know, the trajectory, despite, I think, what's going on at the national level, I I just think cannabis is going to become legal in more and more states, and I think consumers ought to have resources at hand to know how this cannabis grown, and um, also to educate consumers too about just sort of the role of phytochemicals in a plant's body and how that translates to the desired effects, whether you're looking for some kind of couch block thing or whether you're looking for something more clear-headed or whether you're looking for something on the medicinal end. Uh, That's that's all really important and we hope in the new book to um, sort of spill the beans, so to speak, on that story.
0: So whether it's uh, terroir that you're talking about with wine grapes or um, cannabinoids and terpene expression with cannabis, really, it's a, it's a combination of that sort of uh, relationship between uh, nutrient content and soil health and uh, the microbiome in the rhizosphere and how all these interact, these complex interactions are occurring that create sort of that final plant tissue or fruit that we're, that we're consuming ourselves
1: right and uh
0: i would just add to that what i'm seeing with these living soils and getting feedback from some of the growers that we work with is higher levels of terpenes than they're seeing traditionally across the same cultivar so it used to be in the medical days here in washington that you would go into a store and they would just say here you know this is what they have and it would be let's just say og kush is one of the names of one of the cultivars for example And so you would just get, you would get that. There wasn't a lot of uh, test results. You weren't talking about the, you know, odors and flavors of the crop. It was just, it is what it was. It was just the name sort of thing. And now you'll see different growers growing the same cultivar and getting very different results. And before, I think it used to be more about just THC levels. Like people would get in trouble for carrying high amounts of cannabis on them. So they'd want to carry less cannabis. So they'd want stronger cannabis Uh, so they could carry less of it you know if they can get 20 percent thc versus 10 percent thc they could carry half the amount or you know consume half the amount so Mm. now what we're finding is the as the as the sort of the community evolves and as the laws change people are more interested in these terpene levels that they're testing for and how they affect the um, not only the uh, psychoactive effects of cannabis but also the you know the the I guess I would say the recreational process of consuming it which is you know similar to wine in the way that we evaluate it in terms of how when describe it so I think that that's really interesting as you know as the industry evolves
1: yeah You know what I think would be really, really fun in the future to do is to have, you know, we have, um, there's cannabis, um, cannabis tasting events, like the Emerald Cup, I think is one, and there's wine tasting events, and there's tomato tasting events. I think it would be great to organize an event not based on these crops, but hey, let's have, let's have an event about all of the wonderful edibles and quaffables um, from the whole botanical world. And so it would be an event on phytochemicals, like, okay, we know this tomato has, you know, particularly high levels of lycopene. Okay, tasters, you know, what do you think? And then um, also be having it the same kind of thing okay what about the phytochemicals in you know the wines what are what what are we what can we associate with these and what about these phytochemicals in cannabis and i think i think in modern life we're just so disconnected from uh... not only how we grow our food but you know what this whole endeavor of agriculture is is and has been all about. I mean, sure, it was always about survival and getting enough to eat. That's that's obvious. But certainly, at another level, part of all of this is about um, pleasure and it's about fun and it's about flavor and taste and effect and um, being knowledgeable enough to know. Okay, yeah, right. Okay, I've had enough of sugar or i've had enough okay no more no more cannabis for me or you know no more wine for me so i i actually think if people were more educated about the effects of all of these botanical foods beverages and so on um it would be it would it it would be i i think i don't know a, a more interesting way to to move our way through the world of a grocery store, a farmer's market, um, you know, a party, you know, having guests over and so on. I mean, there's, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that humanity has long, long flocked toward, uh, you know, things like sugar and alcohol and, um, and getting high. It's a matter of, okay, well, let's, let's take the pleasure from that, but let's not overdo it.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting as someone who works around a lot of chickens as a farmer, we find that they can regulate their calcium levels. We can just put out eggshells oh. or uh, oyster shells and they will um, they will regulate that based on oh. how they need it. You know, and they need wow. about 16 to, you know, I, I think it's 16, to 18% calcium in their diet or maybe it's protein. I might be confusing the two right now, but uh, basically you don't have to regulate that for them. And I think we do the same in terms of our own needs, like when we crave sugary foods or salty foods um, based on what what our bodies may need. But uh, interestingly enough, I met with uh, Tom Wagner, who's a local plant breeder, specifically known for tomatoes and potatoes. Uh, mm. Green zebra being one of the ones locally here that's pretty oh, well yeah. known that he's created. And what he's really interested in is tomatoes with high-protein content, which is associated with the flavor umami.
1: Oh, so wow.
0: They've they've found this association between the umami flavoring and protein, so he's purposely breeding for tomatoes with higher umami levels as a way, or flavoring as a way of selecting for higher protein. So. I, I thought that was interesting. You know,
1: that is really that is really interesting, and it's 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 also interesting to me because of the ability for us as as human beings to um, equate flavor with quality, and um, right. Protein's protein's an important thing that our bodies have, and umami is a flavor that we like and so voila the two come together and we're consuming a diet of food that um, is actually good for us
0: yeah I'll have to put you in touch with them I think you guys might enjoy yeah chatting. So. yeah
1: yeah this whole uh, I've been reading this reading some books on um, wine lately and uh, the whole way in which I, I recently learned, for example, next time, so Tad or listeners, whoever's out there, next time you take, um, a, you're drinking wine, take in the equivalent of about um, a, a teaspoon of the wine and don't immediately swallow it, but imagine it's food and, and kind of chew on it, and it pushes the wine into all these parts of your mouth and your um, sort of back of the throat area, and it hits uh, taste receptors that i didn 't even knew, i didn 't even know I had, and the wine washes over these taste receptors and it tastes completely different
0: mm-hmm. than
1: the normal way of just sort of pulling in mouth, you know uh, some wine and swallowing it and it was it It had a completely uh, the flavor of the wine, like I'm like, wow, I'm actually tasting this wine. I never, I ne- I don't. It, it was a whole new experience. And because we chew on food, we are probably hitting more uh, taste receptors with food than we are with the things that um, that we drink. So anyway. I just recommend that to people and see what you think about it. You'll find how many different flavors there are in wine. And it also makes me think about the phytochemicals in wine and what, um, what's going on with them as they, um, you know, pass through your mouth and then further on down in the gut. So really, it, really interesting connections between phytochemicals, flavor, nutrition, and, and health and wellness. And I think, I, I know there's books out there, um, people have talked about, you know, part of the purpose of, of taste receptors um, in our body and actually receptors in our gut as well on, um, on cells is to pick up uh, specifically on phytochemicals because they're interacting biochemically uh, with our bodies. In all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. Um, one of the books I really enjoyed, you might want to check out, is called Proof. It's by a gentleman named Adam Rogers. And oh, okay. He, he looks at the science of booze, and that's uh, one, of the, one of the things he talks about is how, um, how we evaluate wine and just how uh, qualitative that process is. Uh, It's it's pretty interesting. I think I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, Yeah, I will send you a link to that as well. Cool. uh, Thanks again for your time today. I enjoyed chatting. It's such a beautiful Seattle day that we get so rarely here. I feel like we should get off the phone and (laughs) allow you to get back outside in your garden.
1: Get out to the garden. Get your hands in the soil. Yeah. Okay. That that sounds good, Ted. Yeah, I've really um, really enjoyed this. I love talking about. As you can tell, I like. I like uh, microbes and soil and plants and the human body and how we're living on this planet and and can take better care of it.
0: Yeah, so just just to summarize, your big takeaways would be for people to, however they're gardening, is to increase their amount of organic matter in their soils in the form of mulching, which has a bunch of benefits, and then also not overdo it. Allow the plants to sort of reach their own genetic potential without, uh, without pushing them too hard in the traditional garden. Is, that, is there anything else? Yeah, I know that, those might...
1: are No, those are great. That's, that's, um, that is exactly it. Uh, and, and I would just say one last thing that we didn't, we didn't hit on. But I think about uh, in the context of not pushing your plants too far and the organic matter is to realize that the soil has a metabolism I think of it as a metabolism, uh, just like our body does. And overwhelming the body of soil with too much of any one thing is what we want to, you know, veer away from. Because it's sort of like, uh, you know, even too much mulch, too much organic matter, the soil can't handle all of that. It's like sitting down to, you know, instead of one plate at dinner, like three platefuls, you just you're going to feel nauseous and uh, overfed and it's just not going to it's just not going to work well. So, being mindful of the soil's ability and the microorganisms in the soil to process that organic matter in a in a timely fashion and I I think there's sort of like a the secret mission of the natural world is uh if a gardener is paying attention to the metabolism of their soil, it also keeps that gardener connected to the natural world, right? Because you've got to be out there sort of checking on that metabolism. Ooh, a little too much here. Oh, we need a little more over there. And so it it I, I think about maybe a gardener as being more, maybe something more like a, a shepherd tending its flock. It's just that our flocks are green and stuck in place. <laughs> so we need to sort of herd them along with uh, the things that we know about what they like and how their bodies work
0: great well again thanks for your time today and uh, i look forward to talking to you soon and hopefully having you out to the farm that was Anne Baclay, co-author of The Hidden Half of Nature, an excellent book on the role microbes play not just in our garden, but also in our bodies. You can check it out on Amazon.com or on their website at www.dig2grow.com. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget that there's more information and articles available on our website and blog at www.kisorganics.com, as well as links to the data and information we discussed in this episode on the podcast page. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please take a moment to leave me a rating and review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and send me your feedback and suggestions through our website contact page, or TAD at kisorganics.com. I have some exciting new podcasts coming up, including an interview on lighting and environmental controls and a follow-up podcast with my good friend, Nelson Lindsley, a cannabis consultant in California. Stay tuned and thanks for listening.